0: The environmental movement is growing ever more extreme. Radical ideas such as granting rights to nature, including geological features like rivers, lakes, and glaciers, are gaining popularity as a means of saving the planet. But is there another way? Can we fulfill our human duty to be good stewards of the environment without undermining human exceptionalism and impeding our thriving? According to my guest Todd Myers, the answer is definitely yes. In his interesting new book, Time to Think Small, Myers writes that nimble environmental technologies can help solve the planet's biggest problems. His thesis is that through the power of smartphones, coupled with the ingenuity of software apps, we can all help promote a healthy environment without sacrificing freedom or harming the economy. He calls it democratizing environmentalism. Myers is a former member of the Washington State Department of Natural Resources and a member of the Puget Sound Salmon Recovery Council. He currently serves as the environmental director at the Washington Policy Center, a public policy think tank in Seattle. His writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, National Review, Seattle Times, and USA Today. He has been interviewed on numerous news network programs, including on CNN, CNBC, and Fox News. Myers has a master's degree in Russian International Studies from the University of Washington. He lives in the Cascade Mountains in Washington with his wife and 200,000 honeybees. <laughs> Todd, welcome to Humanize.
1: Thank you very much. Many, unfortunately, many fewer honeybees right now after a tough winter, but uh, the population will recover.
0: They'll get back. <laughs> you know, I've never had a guest who claims to live with hundreds of thousands of insects. <laughs> Tell us about your honeybees. Are you a... Are you a uh, You produce honey. Is that what you're doing?
1: Yes. I'm just a hobbyist beekeeper, but I have a few hives and um, I get honey as a side benefit. But really, I just, they're very interesting to me. Insects, uh, I mean, it seems like they're just insects, but honeybees, I think uh, for me, are emblematic of how amazing uh, nature and the environment is and the other thing is is somebody is having uh, worked sort of in the abstract in public policy and environment it's very nice to have a tangible connection to environmental stewardship and taking care of honeybees Um, and i think you really get an appreciation for how amazing nature is Um, uh, people are always surprised when i tell them but i can tell the mood of my honeybees. And so it seems strange that insects have moods, but I can tell. So anyway, I I like it very much. It's a, it's a great way to connect with the environment.
0: Uh, Well, if they're angry, you'll know, won't you? (laughs)
1: Absolutely. It's easier to tell when they're angry than when they're not, but uh, generally they're not, fortunately.
0: I noticed that your education was in international affairs and political science, but you've been spent uh, many years now dealing with environmental issues. How did that shift come about?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So when I got out of college, I had, I mean, the chance of me working in environmental policy was about zero. The people I knew in college who were interested in the environment um, looked weird and smelled bad, um, and I was <laughs> uninterested in it, uh, until about 2000 when I ran. So I was a political consultant. I ran political campaigns. Um, <clears throat> I had been to Russia. I had done political training in Russia before that, so that's where I thought it would go. But in 2000, I ran a campaign in Washington state for the Commissioner of Public Lands. um, And we won. Um, And so he took me to Olympia uh, to work with the Department of Natural Resources. And I remember, uh, I knew very little about environmental politics and policy. Um, So I, you know, sort of did a crash course with people in the agency. And I think I walked probably in every state forest in the state over the course of my first year and I remember walking through a forest one time with a forester and he was telling me really amazing things about the dynamism of forests and how they work and and uh, things like that. And I, I looked at him and I said, you know what, this is amazing. I, I, don't, I don't ever hear any of this in the public discourse um, or in public policy, from politicians, and he laughed and he's like, "Oh yeah, you won't hear any of this," and you know, in politics. <clears throat> so that was in 2001, and so here it is, 2023. You know, 22 years later, and I'm still working in it, uh, just because I think that the gap between the political discourse about environmental policy and the environment is just hugely at odds with what actually happens in terms of environmental stewardship. Um, And that is what my book is about, is about how we shift power away from politicians and toward people for environmental stewardship, um, which I think is not only more consistent with my personal values as somebody who believes in the free market, but it's also uh, much more effective in terms of actually being good stewards of the planet.
0: Uh, We're going to get into that in pretty good detail, but what does your work uh, at the Washington uh, Policy Center entail?
1: So I'm the environmental director. So I work in a number of different areas. Um, So I just mentioned forestry. I do a lot of work on forestry policy, um, which is still big in Washington state. I do a lot of work on energy and climate because that's kind of the the big overriding issue that affects a lot of our public policy today. Um, And then um, I'm also on the Hanford Advisory Board, which oversees the cleanup of nuclear waste uh, from Hanford. Um, so I deal in a, in a variety of
0: different areas. And that Hanford, which is where they used to make nuclear weapons, correct?
1: That's correct. And so people get confused because it's, <laughs> the waste is related to the production of nuclear weapons, not to the production of energy. Um, at the Hanford site, there is the Columbia generating station, which produces, um, a lot of energy, which is fantastic. Uh, but that's not where the waste is from. The waste is from the, the cold war um, sort of uh, nuclear uh, bomb production, and I tell people, if you, I mean, not people don't um, sort of go out of their way to get to the Tri Cities. It's a fine place, but it's just a little bit off the beaten path. But if you are there, Reactor B, which was the first reactor that was made to produce plutonium in the World War Two, in World War Two for the bombs, um, is one of the most fascinating tours I've ever done in my life. It's really fantastic, and it's a public. Uh, I don't know it's a park status or a uh, monument or anyway but you can take a tour of it um, it's fantastic it's really interesting I recommend it to anyone
0: how would you describe your own personal thinking about the environment
1: so as I said I didn't you know I didn't start uh, being interested in the environment um, when I was in college or other things like that it was not my main area of focus um, but um, I became interested um, primarily in the science the science really, and how the environment worked and how dynamic it was, um, really interested me. And then applying that to public policy. I'd worked in public policy before and in campaigns, um, but that was what really interested me. And the more I got into it, the more I learned about the environment and that dynamism, the more I became to really um, sort of have an admiration, I'm going to say awe, awe is not the right word, but sort of an admiration for the the ama- amazing way that our environment and nature works and an appreciation for it that I just simply didn't have. So I started from a very wonky position, which uh, people who know me won't be surprised at, but um, that wonkiness has turned into sort of an emotional attachment uh, and a desire to be a good steward, um, and I think those two things can go hand in hand. I, 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 think for a lot of people who start with sort of the uh, you know awe of majesty of the environment, you're having a very emotional attachment, and they make I think a lot of mistakes in public policy because they're driven by that an emotion and sort of um, desire to have a good self image. Um, but so I, but I also appreciate um, the the role that that. Uh, reverence can play um, in having a desire to be good stewards, um, which I think we can, and, and in a way that is consistent with the values of uh, those on the right, like myself.
0: And of course, uh, the passion I <laughs> follow and the work I do for the Discovery Institute is in human exceptionalism. And one of the aspects of human exceptionalism are human duties, one of which I totally agree is to be a proper steward of the environment without doing so in an anti-human way or in a way that materially uh, impedes our thriving.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think those things can go hand in hand. Um, You know, I mean, I, as a beekeeper, um, one of the things that I first learned was how to put the hives back together so that I didn't squish any bees. I mean, (laughs) there are about 50,000 bees in a hive during the summer at their peak And, and, you know, yet, so killing a few of them, it's like, doesn't make an impact and they die in lots of natural ways. And yet still I feel a little bit bad every time I squish one. And so um, there is that role responsibility. I feel to be good stewards, and not to harm them as I'm taking care of them.
0: I noticed in the book that you avoid um, getting into the deeper environmental controversies that royal our society. Uh, You don't, you know, come out one way or the other real hard on global warming or some of the other things. How serious do you look at the current situation with regard to our environmental challenges today?
1: Well, I think it varies. I think, um, you know, with climate change, I think there's a lot of exaggeration about how serious it is. Um, It is a real threat. There is a real risk, Um, but I think a lot of our policies, we actually spend more on the policy than we get back in environmental benefits. So, um, you know, I am uh, uh, I believe it's real, but, you know, not a existential crisis. I think that sort of language is silly. But th- the thing is, is that in my book, what I try to point out is, is that it doesn't matter whether you, we, we need to get beyond that. It doesn't matter whether you think it is an existential crisis or you think it is a hoax. If you think of an existential crisis, you should be very frustrated with the way our policy is going right now because we're failing, right? We're not achieving those goals. We're spending a huge amount of time and money and effort, um, and uh, we're not effectively reducing CO2 emissions. Washington State right here where our governor has made climate change his main issue. CO2 emissions have gone up every year that he has been governor every year he has said oh we're about to turn the corner and they're going to go down and yet despite all of this focus all these policies CO2 emissions keep going up and up and up that's failing uh, if you so you should if you think it's an existential crisis you should want to change you should want to look for an alternative, um, which is what I'm trying to offer. But if you think it's a hoax, or if you think it's just it's real, but it's not a very big threat then you should also want an alternative because you don't want those big government alternatives. But a lot of the technologies that we have now um, allow people to do things that save them money and also reduce CO2 emissions. So the, the fact that environmental policy is so divisive, so political, so partisan right now is the thing that is putting us on the wrong path, not only preventing us from solving some of these problems, but also sending us down a path where, uh, in our failure, we spend a hell of a lot of money. (laughs) That's sort of a lose-lose. I think that um, by moving beyond sort of the divisive politics, we can find a win-win that's out there.
0: Yeah, that was uh, what struck me in the book, is there's a great deal of optimism uh, and an ability to thread the needle, if you will, on uh, the divides that uh, are roiling the country and say, okay, whatever you think about those things, here are things we can do that are practical, that are doable, that are realistic, and that can make a difference.
1: Yeah. It's, so, having worked in environmental policy for more than decades and working in a state like washington state where you know people who believe in the free market are a little bit outnumbered Um, i hang around a lot of uh, environmental activists on the left and we have lots of conversations and there are more than a few occasions where they say something i go i agree with that or i say something and they say i agree with that Um, and so it's those right there's a lot of things we would disagree on But I can tell you that among sincere environmentalists on the left, there is a lot of frustration that government policies are not working. This doesn't mean that they don't believe in those government policies or aren't trying to make them work. It's just that they recognize that there are shortcomings. And so in those sorts of circumstances, I think there's a lot of overlap where we can say, rather than hoping that politicians will solve this, rather than outsourcing environmental concern to politicians... Let's empower ourselves and do things to solve it. Um, I think there's a lot more agreement on that than people realize. Um, and, it, and I think it's something that I have been sort of thrust into the position of seeing simply because I have no choice, right? I have to work with uh, the landscape that is, exists in Washington State. Um, but I have found more agreement than one would expect uh, when you look at the polls.
0: You described four waves of environmental protection, The first was conservation. Uh, I guess you're talking about things like establishing the national parks, John Muir, this kind of thing. Uh, Discuss a little bit about the success that conservation had in the early days.
1: Yeah, so it's sort of we've gone through four phases, and the first one was simply conservation, right? The creation of uh, Yellowstone, um, those sorts of parks to say these are amazing natural areas. We want to protect them that are worth Uh, preserving for the future. And there's a variety of reasons we do that. One is just because of pure natural beauty. One is because there's interesting things like at Yellowstone, um, but also because of protecting habitat for wild animals and things like that. So the first step, right? This is what we think about Teddy Roosevelt was just basic conservation, preserving areas uh, of important natural beauty or significance.
0: And that has also uh, spread to things such as uh, fishing limits so you don't exhaust a a fishing uh, supply uh, and other things that allow us to maintain uh, resources uh, for the future, right?
1: That's exactly right. And what's interesting, you mentioned fishing limits. Fishing limits um, are an idea or a market idea, (laughs) because what you have is what are called catch shares, where a group of people close to the problem, right, a bunch of fishers who say, look, if we just keep fishing and we don't we're not concerned about the future. We're not going to be out of jobs. And so what they do is they get together. They say, here's the limit um, that you know. We, we each have a share that we can catch. We can trade shares. We can do all those sorts of things. It's a very localized problem. Now, what has happened is, is that government has come in, obviously, and formalized some of those things. But ultimately, a lot of those agreements are started or you know implemented at the local level among people closest to the problem rather than imposed from the top down. Um, And I think that that's a really strong message is a lot of the, we have a sense that uh, environmental protections must come from the top down because that's what happened in the 1970s with the EPA and the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. But as Eleanor Ostrom, uh, who was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in Economics noted, a lot of environmental solutions are occurring that we don't necessarily recognize among the people who are closest to the problem um, and are most impacted by it. And, and what I try to point out in my book is, is that those ideas had very, were very limited, right? Because it was limited to the number of people who could sort of collaborate and work together. With technology, you can expand that dramatically because now it's easy to have a lot of people collaborate, get a lot of information and take what were essentially local solutions and apply them to really big uh, national, even international problems.
0: You know, when I was young, I grew up in Los Angeles and, um, during the summers, I lived close to the San Gabriel mountains, let's say 20 miles from the San Gabriel mountains, which are, let's say 5,000, 6,000 feet high in the winter. You could see them beautifully in the summer. You couldn't see them at all because of the smog. And when I would play with my friends in the summer, I'd come home and my chest hurt from, uh, the smog. Uh, And I always just thought, well, this is the way things are. But then some top-down solutions occurred. Uh, They got rid of lead in gasoline and this kind of thing. And while Los Angeles is certainly not a (laughs) pristine air environment now compared to when I was a kid, uh, it's, it's dramatically improved. So we can see that big government solutions have helped. But it strikes me, and and I'd like your opinion on this, i um, that we've kind of hit a p- time of diminishing returns yes. from big the big government approach because it gets so bloated and so moribund by regulations that you can't move and and it and it actually kind of grinds to a halt.
1: Yeah, I think there are several reasons. I think that's great, and in fact. I have a story of my own, and my family went to the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. And I remember we watched uh, uh, horse jumping or something like that outside and spent the whole day outside. And I coughed all night. I still remember coughing because we had spent the day in the smog. But the things that worked in the 1970s aren't really likely to work today. And it's not, you don't just have to take my word for it. Bill Ruckelshaus, who was the first director of the EPA in the 1970s, who ushered in a lot of those laws. Wrote a great piece about ten years ago in the Wall Street Journal, saying that the types of solutions that he applied in the 1970s aren't likely to work today. And the reason is, is that in the 1970s you had big smokestacks, you had big outfalls in the water, and we addressed those what are called point sources. Now we have what's called a, a non-point, which is a lot of distributed sources of pollution, and that's not just you know air pollution, that could be like plastic in the ocean and things like that, and Uh, having a one size fits all solution for problems that are so distributed doesn't make sense. Technology, innovation, however, can be diverse it can address lots of little inputs uh, in a way that government is just not adept at doing and so that's why so many of the environmental problems that we see today um, aren't getting solved in the way that they did in the 70s right that's why that's one of the reasons i should say we're failing at addressing co2 emissions it's one of the reasons that you know Uh, plastic pollution is going into the ocean and you know international treaties are not doing anything there's lots of things that are not getting solved and so what's ironic is is that you hear the frustration of people saying oh my god we have all these environmental problems that are getting worse not better and yet they're trying to apply 1970s solutions to 2020 problems without realizing that what worked then is not likely to work now and so we just keep beating our head against a wall but there is an alternative which is innovation, which I think, as I say, is is uh, well suited to uh, so those on the right. I mean, those who believe in free markets, because it harnesses personal incentives and personal engagement and accountability in the way top-down government solutions don't really.
0: Yeah, and you, and, and that's what the book is about, and we're going to get into some of those details. Um, you you say that the third. Uh, uh, wave was uh, NGO and government collaboration with big business, which is not what you're talking about in your book. How, how did the collaboration with big business come about and how did that work out?
1: So I will give you an example. So uh, EDF, uh, the Environmental Defense Fund, um, has a very active public, you know, sort of policy wing, but they also have a, a very good technology wing where they work with governments to try to find what our businesses, rather, to to try to find ways to solve problems. I'll give you an example. Um, One of the concerns, uh, climate concerns, is what's called um, fugitive methane, which is methane that leaks at the wellhead when you're uh, doing uh, natural gas. Well, that's like natural gas, that's valuable. And so what EDF has worked with Uh, businesses to try to find ways to capture that so it doesn't go into the atmosphere. And it's a win-win because then the the company can take that gas and sell it. Um, And so there is collaboration on those sort of major projects, types of projects. um, Oh, that's really,
0: yeah, that's interesting because I've known that in the past, They've burned that off, that extra, right?
1: They flare it, right? So flaring Flaring it it. actually is a good thing because it reduces the greenhouse, the impact, both air pollution and climate impact of that fugitive methane by turning it from methane into co2 methane is much more potent as a greenhouse gas than co2 so that's a good first step but if instead of flaring it you can capture it that's even better so um so those sorts of collaborations go on and i think that's really great Um, i think you know we need more of that But again, that's still sort of high level and that's, you know, that's not a sort of a solution that's going to solve a lot of things and it doesn't empower individuals. It doesn't harness that uh, effort of individuals, but that is, you know, I think it's a really positive
0: step. And your uh, fourth wave is innovation and technology. And then your focus in the book is on small tech and thinking small. Describe what you mean by that.
1: So, you know, 15 years ago, if I had said we need to get people more involved in the environment, it would have been very, you know, thought of in a standard way. Either people think of it as, you know, more marching, right? More political protest uh, or just like, you know, going down and cleaning a park or doing those sorts of things, all of which I think are fine. Not a fan of the marching. I don't think it works, but I think, you know, lots of local connection to your community um, and cleaning up your community is great. But... Now, cell phones and personal technology are everywhere, right? In 15 years, we've gone from not having iPhones to the biggest complaint being that everybody is on their iPhones. (laughs) So the power of this technology to engage people is really tremendous. And I'll just give you a simple example of how powerful this can be. So last September, California was facing an energy crisis where they had a shortage. It was a hot day. Um, and so they were going to face blackouts. So they did something they'd never done before, which is they texted homeowners and simply sent them a text that said, we're facing shortages, please conserve where you can. Within 15 minutes, demand went down by 2000 megawatts and avoided the blackouts. And just to put that in context, 2000 megawatts is about what California was using in battery power, industrial sort of grid scale battery power at the time. So one text, think about all the billions of dollars that they spent on these batteries. One text did that equivalent in 15 minutes and avoided blackouts. And I think it's just a really dramatic example of the power of connectivity um, and of personal technology to have a big impact. Now, each individual person who like turned off their lights or didn't use their dishwasher or, or clothes dryer or something like that, you could just say, oh, that was just a small thing. But the the ability of technology to aggregate all those things into big impacts i think is really amazing
0: yeah because if you don't have a blackout that's not a small thing it's exactly. a big thing yeah and 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 the reason there was no blackout is because millions of individuals acted in a very tiny way in terms of the overall aspect. But when you have millions acting in a tiny way, it becomes big, which gets you to your honey, honeybees, each collecting pollen, right? And then they end up with, with a a hive full of honey.
1: Right. So you have 50,000 honeybees in a hive. Each of them does a very small part, plays a very small role. And each of them adapts, right? Some of them will connect Uh, collect pollen, others uh, nectar, others water. I mean, like each of them does what works best for the hive um, and each plays their role. um, And those roles are adaptive, right? That's the exact opposite of what government policy is. Government policy is a top down. It's very static. It's very one size fits all. And it's like, you know, we're going to do it rather than use the power of everybody
0: and we're going to coerce you we're okay. going to coerce you into doing it which gets people's backs up
1: That's correct. Yeah. So, uh, you know, giving people the options to do what is best for them and rewarding them, right? The people who turned off their lights or or, or postponed using their dryer, things like that, they, you know, they saved money. It may be just a little bit of money, but they saved money. And one text, you can say, okay, that was nice for one moment, but we need to do more than that. That's exactly right. But there are technologies that do that. In my home, I have a technology called Sense, which tracks my electricity use um, and uses artificial intelligence to tell me where I'm using electricity in my home so I can look at it and figure out where to conserve. Um, And, you know, I'm an energy geek, and there have been plenty of times where I've looked at it and realized I would never have thought that I was using that much electricity in this area. And so it's helped me. So... Uh, While that text, I think, is a dramatic example, there are ways to take that individual example and extend it every day. Again, so you're getting those kind of environmental and energy benefits every day in a way that saves money. So getting back to the politics, let's say you don't believe climate change is real or risk or anything else. But if I tell you, if you do this, you're going to save money. Well, guess what? (laughs) You're going to do it. Um, And so if we can these technologies allow us to move beyond those political conflicts to where everybody has an incentive to do the right thing and accountability to make sure that what they're doing actually works.
0: And it doesn't matter whether you're politically conservative or progressive, you don't want to be part of a blackout.
1: (laughs) That's exactly right. So (laughs) it's funny because from time to time, and I get this, so people get nervous, right, about all of this technology and their privacy and somebody having control, right? So one of the areas of conflict are smart thermostats. So smart thermostats, I have one in my home. They uh, can be used in some places where during peak hours, if there's a shortage of energy, you can sign up voluntarily to reduce or increase, depending on the demand, uh, the temperature in your home, a few degrees during those peak hours. Um, And oftentimes the utilities will give you a rebate um, for participating. And what people say is like, that's nice, Todd, but I'm worried about that they can control that, right? That they can do it without my, um, you know, without me approving that. I agree. I don't like that either. But you also have to understand that the alternative is for them simply to turn your lights off (laughs) so they can already control the electricity into your house by forcing a blackout. So I, you know, believe me, I don't want people reaching into my home and controlling my technology as much as anybody else. But we also have to remember that they already do that and when they do it it's really draconian and dramatic and if we can find ways to avoid those sorts of circumstances i think that's progress even if it's not perfect
0: so it's a sledgehammer versus uh let's say a tweezer
1: <laughs> yes yeah yeah and i look i as i said i just want to say it again because people are very nervous about the you know technology and other people controlling technology so i I, you know, I agree with that, but I just I want to make sure that we put as much power in the hands of individuals as we can, because right now, in many ways, our electricity system, the consumer is completely left out. The decisions are made between utilities and government, and consumers are sort of an afterthought. We need to get consumers into the game. And then what happens is, is that consumers start to realize what's going on, why their prices are going up. They see those prices in a more tangible way. Everybody knows what the price of gas is because it's on every street corner. But if you ask somebody how much they pay for a kilowatt hour, they won't know what they pay and they won't know what a kilowatt hour is. Correct. Yes. And in those sorts of circumstances, politicians can do all sorts of things um, that people don't realize because they're not paying attention to it. Giving people more power is not only good just because we should empower people, but it's also good because they... it makes it less likely that politicians can play games um, at the public's expense.
0: You write um, that you actually think that because you can give people personal incentives, let's say to save money or even make money, uh, that that's actually a superior approach than to the moral suasion kind of hammering your to feel guilty approach.
1: Yeah. So a lot of what we see in environmental policy is very tied in with identity politics yes, and it the is the notion that I am a good person. Um, I remember I gave a speech one time where I was I'd done some a- analysis on green buildings and I was showing that green schools actually used more energy than non green schools. <laughs> Um, and I had a guy literally pound his fists on the table and tell me that I was immoral for saying that, well, I was just showing the data, but that guy's identity was so tied up in appearing to help the environment that he was willing to ignore, uh, the data. And so I think that when you connect your personal image to the environment, you make a lot of bad decisions, but, for those people whose identities are about the environment, they think moral suasion, they think putting moral pressure to do the right thing is the best way to do it because it works for them. But that's not what the data show. What the data show is, is that like people get in their utility bills, it'll say, here's how much electricity you, you use, here's how much your neighbors use, here's how much your most efficient neighbor use in an effort to sort of you know nudge you into using a less uh, electricity. And what they find is that that those work for a few months. (laughs) And then people start to go out of hell with it. I'm going to do what I want.
0: (laughs) But
1: what they found was, is that comparing that to where you actually give people a financial incentive, where you show them, here's how much money you save, or giving them a bonus or things like that for saving electricity, especially during peak hours, when electricity is not only most expensive, but most carbon intensive, that that lasts. And in fact, there was a study where they took away the financial incentive and people kept doing the same thing because they had become accustomed to it. So connecting people to incentives is very powerful, much more powerful, much more sustainable in the truest sense of that word, which means that it can be sustained over time than just you know sort of trying to shame people into helping the environment.
0: And you wrote that the way that this can be done is with smartphones and apps, that people would go into their apps to check their electricity approach, or they would go into their app to check uh, the water situation. Is is that right?
1: Yeah. So, you know, look, this is not for everyone. Not everyone is going to do this. Um, But that's the beauty of technology is, is that because the barriers to innovation are so low now. We can offer a diversity of things. So one thing may not appeal to me, right? Having a smart uh, meter that or a smart thermostat that my utility can turn up and down when it's necessary and then reward me. A lot of people are going to say, no, I don't want to do that. I don't have a problem with it. I like it. But for other people, there may be another solution. So a diversity of options that, that, you know, that fits everyone is the way we need to go. Again, government can't do that. Government's very good at one size fits all, not at a diversity of options.
0: And you've but, got millions of people trying to come up with po- profitable apps. Yes. And so you've got all of that uh, that innovation and that kind of ingenuity going on that some will break through and actually make a difference.
1: That's exactly right, but the technology is so powerful now and the information is so available that we can do amazing things like in the UK there's a utility called Octopus Energy and they bought some wind turbines and so they started what they called their fan club and if you sign up for the fan club when the wind turbine in your area is turning they will tell you and you will get a discount on your electricity rates while the wind turbine is turning. And if it's and if it's really windy and turning a lot, they will cut the rates dramatically. So, I mean, w- what only a utility could do 10 years ago, now any random person with a smartphone can do today, that's the power. Now again, this is not for everybody. Not everybody is that into it or gonna you know, be willing to pay that much attention. But for those who are, it is an option. And as these options multiply, we multiply the environmental benefits in a way that is consistent with personal choice and, you know, financial benefit.
0: Um, one of the stories that uh, uh, in your book that I I found most moving had to do with the developing world, uh, w- uh, in Africa, uh, where pe- people have a problem with clean water, yeah. uh, and you talked about how and you wrote about. How some of this small technology has actually made it so people aren't getting sick and dying from dirty water. Tell that story.
1: This is one of my favorite stories. I just I think it's such an amazing example. So one of the challenges of clean water in Africa is that if you don't have a water pump, um, you have to go to typically the women have to hike to a local stream or river, uh, pick up as much water as they can and then hike back, you know, often uh, the UN considers a kilometer, which is over half a mile to be accessible. So imagine picking up as much water as you can, and then walking a kilometer back. So the problem is, is that if you get that water, you don't know that it's clean, and you have to do you, you have to buy charcoal or things like that to boil it. So as a result, in a lot of these areas, the number one cause of deforestation is cutting down trees to boil water. The other way that you can get water is that you can buy plastic bags. Well, if you don't have access to water, you certainly don't have access to trash collection. So what happens to the plastic bags? They get thrown around. So so NGOs and governments say, "Okay, we're going to put in a pump. That's great. Problem is, is that uh, just under half of pumps break within 18 months. So now a community is back in the same situation unless somebody knows how to fix that pump. And oftentimes the NGOs or the governments that had put them in are gone or it takes them months to fix it. So a group of frustrated UN employees who had seen this started a group called E-Water, uh, E-Water Services, and they put in Internet connected pumps. And what that Internet connection does, two things. One is it allows them to charge for the water. So people put a little bit of money into an account. It charges about a penny a day for the water. That's a really good thing because you use the water that you're you, you take the water that you're going to use. You don't use too much because you have to pay for it. So it provides an incentive to conserve. But the second thing it does is it is it makes sure is it tells you if that pump is working. So if the pump breaks, they're now losing money. And so eWater Services can immediately find out that a pump is broken, send somebody out to fix it. And so what used to take months to fix is now taking a day. And they actually have an online uh, dashboard that shows that at any time 98% of their pumps are in working order, which is remarkable. And they have served more than 1 billion liters of water now to people in three countries. Um, more than 250,000 people have benefited from this. So it's really remarkable just how simple that technology is, right? Simple cloud connected water pump. Lots of people in developing countries have cell phones, so cell coverage is everywhere. Just that simple innovation has made a difference for hundreds of thousands of people in terms of accessing water.
0: And that has saved lives and saved people from becoming seriously ill, which allows them to work and so forth.
1: Absolutely. And it also gives them more time. Right now, they don't have to spend their day going back and forth to the stream. They can pump the water in their community and they have more control, but... Um, There is an interesting uh, footnote to this, which is that in one of the countries where they have these pumps, uh, the local elections are coming up and the party in power has now promised free water for everyone. And so they claim that they're going to go put in water pumps in all of these communities so everyone can get free water. Well, as I describe in my book, this we've tried this before, right? That's what led to the problem that ewater Services was trying to solve. It's a lot of wasted water, um, a lot of broken pumps. And so you know it's great politics. But it has now undermined a sustainable business model. And unfortunately, E-Water Services is pulling out of that country. And so these folks are now going to be back in that situation where they don't have reliable access to water. And I think it is a fantastic example of how political incentives are at odds with sustainable environmental incentives. They're undermining a solution that is working.
0: So that was the top down is actually destroying the bottom up approach. Right because, working.
1: right, because the political incentives are for the government to say, look how good we are, right? They are not judged on whether the water actually works because it's a promise for the future. Whereas e-water services is judged by whether that pump works. If the pump's not working, they're not making money. If the government, right, if they say, we're going to give everybody free water, and they get reelected, and it doesn't work out, well, that's a problem they can deal with down the line, but the people who suffer are the people in those villages.
0: And and they'll just say, well, we're going to give you more free water. (laughs) That's right. Uh, There's another uh, interesting story about um, ocean cleanup called Seabin, S-E-A-B-I-N, where the surfers, I guess, figured out how to make it so that they could clean up a lot of plastic that was polluting their surfing areas and arenas. Tell us that story.
1: Well, I like this story a lot, not because, you know, it's solved the problem of ocean plastic because it certainly hasn't, but it has made an impact in a lot of places. And the thing is, is that I think it shows how accessible these innovations are that anybody who has an interest in solving a particular problem now has the ability to do it. So, as you mentioned, there are these two surfers, who were tired of seeing plastic and garbage where they surf because there was a marina nearby. And what would happen is things would blow into the water and they would eventually go out into the ocean. So what they were trying to do is figure out, well, how can we collect this? So they think created a thing called sea bin, which is just basically a floating trash can. So it floats around, There's a pump at the bottom. It draws in the water. And when it draws in the water, it draws in the trash and then pumps the water out the bottom. And so then it floats around, picks up the trash. They take the liner out, throw it away and start over again. And as a result, they have picked up millions and millions of pounds of plastic and trash. And it all started with two surfers who put this idea on a crowdfunding site and people loved it. And so, you know, people were giving $5. They were never going to see the benefit personally of a bin, but liked the idea. And so I think it just shows that, you know, anybody with an interesting idea now has access to the funding and the technology to make a difference. And it doesn't have to solve, right? It, it's not necessary that it solve the problem of ocean plastic in its entirety. If it solves a problem in marinas, in places like Sydney or Los Angeles, things like that, that's progress. That's benefit. Um, and by allowing people, anyone to do those sorts of things bit by bit, we can make the planet better and be good stewards.
0: Yeah. And your thesis is that, okay, you have bin here. Somebody else has a different idea in India that picks up another 20 million tons, et cetera, et cetera. And over time, you've made a real dent in the issue.
1: That's exactly right. And like I said, as we've said several times, government has a hard time doing that. They want to do one size fits all. Government's not good at, okay, we have 100 different solutions that are unique to those 100 different areas. Technology, innovation, small scale innovation is very good at doing that. And bit by bit, it can make a much bigger environmental benefit uh, than government top-down solutions in many of these types of problems.
0: All right, we've already alluded to so, uh, one of the dangers in terms of privacy and so forth, but let's let's get into a little bit of this because uh, there are perils here that I think we need to think about, and and also perhaps in your next book really explore more deeply. You do you do write about it, but it's not the focus of your book on how to prevent the downside from destroying these various interesting innovative approaches that we've been describing and one is the idea of uh, and you did allude to it earlier big tech gathering our data you know apps can track us i i um uh, wrote an article about, a, I saw a proposal uh, during COVID that said, oh my gosh, look at these apps that we have in COVID that allow us to uh, make sure people have had vaccinations, and I'm not going to get into that controversy, or to try to do contact tracing that never really got off the ground, but they were thinking about contact tracing apps, where one, uh, one uh, uh, anti-global warming person said, let's have people have apps on their phones, and then we can track the amount of carbon that they emit because we'll know when they fill up the gas tank, we'll know when they've been driving. And I'm thinking, can we say authoritarian? So um, how do we prevent that kind of um, uh, use of what, what you call small technology to actually control the population?
1: This is why we can't have nice things, right? (laughs) Is that, that Technologies and things that are designed to empower people and give them more choice over their own life—that there are always people out there who are thinking about how they can use it against you—and so it's very frustrating. It's and it is a uh, it's it's difficult for somebody who is a technology optimist like myself when people say, "Can't these be used against you?" And I say, "Well, of course, right? I mean, everything can be abused." um but you know some of the gr- the greatest abuses um of human rights in history were before technology um so it's a government finds a way but uh, it, it's it's a real threat so i definitely understand that I, I think that there are many answers to this one is as i've said before i think all of this has to be voluntary i think we have to make sure that it's voluntary um and put you know as many guardrails around that as possible. I think many of these companies know that, right? They know that if their technology or their data is used to control people, their business model is destroyed. People will never trust them again. I think that's fantastic, right? I think we should <laughs> tell those companies, if you abuse this, we're going to punish you. I really, uh, I really like that. That's, I mean, it's harder to do with government. But I think the fundamental thing is is that technology is already being used to control people. What it's not being done enough is giving people is empowering people, and so uh, I think that if we say I'm not going to use these technologies, or we're going to try to block these technologies because they could be used to control me, my answer is: I hate to tell you, these sorts of technologies are already available to those who want to control us. Why don't we make it available to us so that we can benefit it, we can understand it, and we can have more control? So it's not without risk. I certainly understand that. But I do think that rather than try to cut people off from these technologies, um, what we need to do is give people these technologies because government already has them.
0: That's a good point, um, but I do also worry that people get very passive, and I think about the TikTok phenomenon yeah. of uh, millions and millions of people using this uh, technology yeah. that has proved to be not only socially poisonous, but demonstrated to be a spy mechanism yeah. for communist China, and people don't care.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, look, I, uh, I I am in the public policy and public persuasion business, Everybody is on TikTok. There's a reason TikTok isn't on my phone. (laughs)
0: Yes, (laughs) exactly. It
1: could be a very effective way to reach uh, an audience that I want to reach for the very Mm reasons you're talking about. So you're right. We can't be naive. We can't be passive about it. Um, So there's no perfect solution. I mean, I just, let's face that. We do have to be vigilant. We do have to be careful. Um, At the end of the day, I'm a little more comfortable than others. And look, if you don't trust, you know, your smart putting stuff on your smartphone smart thermostats technology that's in my you know um uh, electrical uh, box to you know look at the electricity i'm using and figure out what i'm using then don't use it
0: exactly um and, don't and I think, you and i both have not downloaded tiktok yeah and so that does give us the freedom not to be spied on by communist china
1: <laughs> that's right so be careful be choosy um but I think my concern is is that uh, the reaction is in the other direction, which is because of the danger, we don't wanna, we don't want to allow any of this or we want to put severe restrictions on it, which basically make it very difficult for consumers to use um, and essentially leaves it in the hands of only, big technology or big government because, um, they do have the capacity to understand it and use it in ways that individuals can't. I want to lower the barriers so that everybody can have access rather than just, you know, keeping it in the hands of, you know, big government and big companies.
0: Yeah. And I think China's social credit system, which you discuss in the book, um, uh, illustrates the dangers and, and, but it's not voluntary for the Chinese. Correct. Yeah. Where they have to have these uh, these apps on their phones that could actually prevent them from getting on public transportation, supposedly right. over COVID, but it becomes over politics. So I think you're right that the answer to preventing a social credit approach, top down using of these the small technology in a despotic way, is making sure that it's voluntary and not mandatory.
1: And, and more transparency. I, you know, look, yeah. as you mentioned at the top of the show, my degree is in Russian international studies. I did political training in Russian, and I have been to the Soviet Union. <laughs> you are not going to find anybody more nervous about big government control than I am. So I certainly don't underestimate these risks. Um, I just think that that the way to deal with them is to put power in the hands of individuals rather than just the government.
0: And you also mention in the book uh, the threat of cyber attacks. How would that Uh, uh, be a problem, and how would that be resisted? Yeah.
1: So even if government says, okay, it's all voluntary, we're not going to force it, um, there are malevolent actors out there who might try to take control of these things and hack them. Um, Always a risk. We need to do more on that. Um, But the good thing is, is that it's recognized. You know, the technology, the the smart thermostat companies, the other companies who have these things, they don't want their you know technologies to be hacked so they are at work on it um, here in washington state the pacific northwest national labs which is the national laboratory um, has um, a test bed where they test um, what's called internet of things basically all these little gadgets that connect to the internet to see so that they can detect okay what does it look like when it's working well And what does it look, you know, and if it deviates from that, right, if the signals it's sending out are different from that, what's going on? It has it been hacked, is it doing something? And so I think efforts like that to increasingly improve the security um, of the technology that we have is important. Um, But the good thing is, is that the companies who produce these um, and the government have a strong incentive to fight against that hacking. So they're working with us um, against the hackers. It's not perfect. Again, it's a risk, and you have to weigh those risks and rewards. Uh, is the is my concern about somebody hacking my uh, smart thermostat, which may be extremely low, uh, worth it based on the energy savings that I'm getting from it, or the you know financial rewards that my utility is giving? And if you decide no, uh, the risk of hacking is too high. I'm just going to go with a the simple thermostat. Great. I think that's your decision, right? My, in my opinion, it's different, but we need to keep reducing that risk of cyber um, threats so that the rewards outweigh the risks for you know virtually everyone.
0: And there's a tremendous economic benefit throughout society because this is a whole new industry. It's not that new anymore, yeah. but but you can see it continuing to develop. I have to say I'm a bit of a luddite, and I have a nest thermostat and it drives me crazy because if I want to set it to 70 it suddenly sets it to 68 and I haven't asked to do it and I haven't yet figured out how to how to wrestle that thing to the ground but but I'll keep working on it <laughs> um, As you look at the current moment, we're almost at, out of time here but I'd like your your thoughts. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about our ability to maintain proper environmental practices without succumbing to the kind of anti-humanism that, in my opinion, the nature rights movement reflects in some of the more extreme environmental proposals? How do you feel about that? Think about that. What do you think about that?
1: I think there's an interesting push-me-pull-you that goes on, which is um, that I think is as we become wealthier, we both have more opportunities to spend resources focusing on being good stewards of the environment so it's called the environmental kuznets curve which is that as countries grow pollution goes up but if they reach a certain point of prosperity then actually pollution goes down because they have the resources to help the environment and i think that you know united states has turned that corner a lot of other countries and a lot of developing countries will as we can share the technology that helps flatten that curve and so i think that's really great But what I also see on the other side is is that if people are prosperous, they are less attuned to threats like you're talking about that take away rights because they are comfortable, because they don't perceive those as very significant threats. And and unfortunately, I think in some of the most wealthy places, and you certainly see this in Washington state, uh, but I'm certain across uh, the globe, The wealthiest people are the ones who are then supporting those efforts to, you know, give rights to nature, things like that, because they think, well, I'm going to be fine and it's not going to impact me, but it will impact a lot of other folks. And so I think that there is that tension there. But on the whole, I think that there is a large amount of people in the middle um, who are non-ideological um, who want to help the environment but don't know how. And so the way that they do it now is they simply outsource the environment to politicians and figure politicians will take care of it. That, I think, is the environment where the threats you're talking about of where these you know giving rights to nature are, can grow uh, without people perceiving it. The more we connect people directly to environmental stewardship, To see what's going on, to see the costs, to see the benefits, to see the results, to see what works, to see what doesn't, that's when you can prevent those things. It is when people are sitting back, not paying attention or don't have the information, that the risks of really bad public policy are the greatest. And what I want to do is use technology to engage people to fight those sorts of bad policies, but also do things that actually work better than big government to help the environment
0: hence democratizing environmentalism.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Well, we're out of time, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. What next for Todd Myers?
1: Well, um, so what I want to, you know, my book is about something that people are already doing. People are already finding ways to innovate. And I think that uh, what we need to, what I want to do next is get more people involved, um, especially young people. I have spoken in a couple of colleges and universities recently, um, Whitworth and Spokane. I, I give a lecture at Harvard. And what I find is, is that young people um, care about the environment but also recognize the problems of government. And so it used to be uh, when I lectured at universities, the college students would sort of push back on my approach of individual empowerment. They don't anymore. I don't hear that. I hear questions, like, how can we do this? How does this work? So I'm working with a lot of organizations to put on seminars about how college students and other young people can innovate for the environment rather than head out and march and try to get politicians to take more control. So I think that's the, that's the work I'm really excited about is working with young people to change the mindset about how we help the environment.
0: Well, that lets them be proactive instead of, uh, let's say, despairing and nihilistic.
1: That's exactly right. And I think that, and I think that sort of we're all doomed, you know, we only have 10 years to live. That's the sort of mindset that encourages really bad, really dangerous public policy. People who don't feel empowered um, sort of lash out in all sorts of unpredictable ways. People who feel empowered and focused, they're the ones I think who are going to have uh, the best results in a way that is directed and uh, you know isn't designed to take everybody else's rights away and, and freedoms.
0: Plus, young people are very tech savvy.
1: That's exactly right. So yeah. they're, they're, their love of TikTok notwithstanding, they, they <laughs> do understand uh, technology.
0: Yes, very good. Well, Todd Myers, thanks for being on Humanize. I appreciate it. And we'll talk again.
1: It's very nice to chat with you.
0: Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift To support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.